biggest experiences that I had in the past 12 months was to worship with you last Lord's Day. What a joy to gather in this place and to hear music that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus, to be here and to hear the Word of God proclaimed, the Word that assures us that those who rest in Jesus, uh, for them that life is not over, that they live in Christ for all eternity. My father died in 2010, and I still miss him all the time. And you can imagine how many people that I've buried in 44 years of gospel ministry, many of them uh, people that I had grown incredibly close to through my ministry. I also get called upon in um, my parents' families to bury relatives. And there's so many people that I have loved, that I have been associated with, that are gone. What a joy to know that Jesus defeated death in his death and resurrection, and that we will see and enjoy again our beloved loved ones who've died in Jesus. In 2014, the Pew Research Center did a religious landscape study, and they do these regularly. The last one I think that's published is the 2014 one. And in that study, they found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven. And in the survey, heaven was defined as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Now, the 72% was across all the people that were surveyed. When you surveyed people who had religious affiliation, 82% of those people believed in heaven. Now, I don't know if those numbers surprised you, but when I read them early in the week, they surprised me. And they surprised me because I have become progressively more aware of the fact that the culture in which I now live, the religious culture in which I now live in this country, is not at all the culture into which I was born. Uh, when I was a little boy, most people had some sort of association with church and people generally knew what uh, the Bible taught about things like heaven and the afterlife. But all of that has changed. There's been a huge tide of secularization that has swept across our country. Dr. R. Laird Harris was an Old Testament scholar. He was a seminary professor. He translated portions of the NIV and the Old Testament. He's also an author. And one of the books that he wrote was Eternity in Their Hearts. And in it, he shows how scripture and history and the study of world cultures indicated to him that a belief in death is just built into everybody who comes into this realm. He felt just as though, uh, just as the Ten Commandments are built into everyone, and Romans 2, uh, 5 tells us that they are, that so a belief in eternity uh, was built into everyone coming into the race. And that built-in belief, he thought, explained the elaborate burial uh, preparations that people make for their dead. Uh, and if you just think about the Egyptians and uh, how much effort they invested in preserving um, their beloved dead for the afterlife, uh, you can understand where he is coming from. But if this is true, it would also explain the high percentages of people that believe in heaven, even today, 
people who believe in it who have no religious connections at all. What this means is that if you attend a funeral anywhere in the world, the chances are that most of the people around you are thinking death is not the end. Uh, I recently attended a funeral that was uh, one of the most secular funerals that I have ever uh, attended. And it was conducted by an organization that was a very secular organization indeed. But even in that environment, when friends got up to say wonderful things about the deceased, a couple of them, though being very, very careful not to show overmuch faith, allowed that the deceased might still exist somewhere. The death of a relative or a friend, a coworker, provides us with wonderful opportunities to share our faith. When someone in our network dies, all of us who are attendant to the needs of the family of the deceased think thoughts like the thoughts articulated by George Bernard Shaw. He said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. Engage those people when you have opportunity in conversation about life after death. Share with them how you have come to know that when you die, you will enter heaven, that you will be present with the Lord. <clears throat> Tell them how they can enjoy in Christ uh, a wonderful future that God has prepared for those who believe in Jesus. Now, the scriptures talk a lot about heaven. Uh, the word heaven is used about 500 times, 550 times in scripture, but it's referred to uh, many other times where the actual term heaven is not used. Now, when scripture emphasizes something that much, I think what it means is that it's a major concern of God that people know what it is that he keeps talking about in his holy, inspired, inerrant word. God wants people to know about death. He created us for eternity. He wants us to know about it. Now, I'd like to begin this morning by asking the question, what happens to a Christian at death? And attempting to answer that. To do that, I'd like you to, to take you back to Passion Week and I'd like you to think about what happens in Luke 23, 26 through 46. There, Jesus hangs on a Roman instrument of torture and death. Jesus' cross, as you know, is positioned between the crosses of two criminals. The three men who hang there have been beaten, they bleed, their bodies experience shock. Jesus on the center cross is mocked by the religious leaders of his people. He's mocked by the Roman guard who is present to carry out the execution. He is challenged to save himself. If he is the Christ, if he's the son of the living God, he should come off the cross and save himself if he can. One of the thieves being crucified with Jesus hurls insults at Jesus. But the other thief who has watched Jesus suffer, who's listened to what Jesus had to say from the cross, read the sign over Jesus' head, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, rebukes his mocking peer 
who dies there uh, with him. This one who is dying, this criminal, acknowledges his sin. He addresses Jesus with faith that Jesus is in reality the one whom the mockers scornfully called the Christ of God, the chosen one. He also prays in Luke 23, 42, Jesus, that is Savior, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Jesus immediately responds to this thief and to the thief's prayer. And he responds with a promise. He says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we know from the sixth to the ninth hour that darkness settled into the land of Palestine. We know that Jesus there on the cross is offering up his body and soul as the only sacrifice that can take away sins before a holy God. We know that he makes sacrifice there that's sufficient for all who had believed, all who would believe. And when the penalty for sin has been fully paid by the sinless God-man, and Jesus no longer need to suffer, he cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus breathed his last, his physical life ended, and his soul was immediately present with his heavenly Father in paradise or heaven. And unless Jesus is a liar, when the penitent thief breathed his last, he was with Jesus, and he knew that he was there. He knew that he was present with him. In John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus speaks to a grieving sister who has lost a brother that was dearly beloved. And Jesus says to that sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Jesus was assuring her that though her brother's physical life, his life on earth was over, his body had experienced death, but his soul lived on. For Jesus, for the penitent thief, for Lazarus, for all who die in Christian faith, death means continued conscious existence in the presence of the Lord. Now, the Scripture does speak at times of the dead being asleep. And there are some fringe groups that believe that when a Christian dies, their soul goes to sleep until the resurrection. But when the Scriptures talk about believers being asleep, the references describe believers as resting from their participation in the affairs of this life. It's the kind of rest that's in view in Revelation 13, verse 14. There the Apostle John writes this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. See what he's saying in that verse? He's saying that activity here is over for them. They've entered a new realm. They've entered heaven. They're asleep with regard to participation of the affairs of this life. Now, sleep is also used in Scripture to describe the period during which believers are in heaven and waiting the resurrection of their bodies. So there's really two kind of phases to heaven. If you 
die today before Jesus returns, your soul will go to be with the Lord, will be in heaven. You will be absent from the body, present with the Lord. But you will be awaiting the return of Jesus and the resurrection of your body. You're going to have a glorious body like Christ's glorified body uh, at the resurrection of Jesus. So sometimes Scripture uses the term sleep to explain what's, uh, to, to reference believers who are awaiting the resurrection. Let me give you an example. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. When Christ returns, he's going to bring the souls of those who are in heaven uh, to be joined again to, their res to resurrect the bodies. Now, when the Bible speaks of the dead as asleep, the reference is not to soul sleep, to an unconscious state between death and resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul talks about an experience that he had. He's not sure quite how it happened. He doesn't know if it happened in his body or if it was in his soul. But he tells us that he was permitted to experience heaven in some way. And he is sure that the experience that he had being transported to heaven some way, he, he is assured that he was made, made aware of what heaven was really like. In a fully conscious state, God permitted him to experience wondrous things that he was not able to tell us about when he came back. God would not permit him to describe the experience that he had in heaven. It was a preview of heaven that allowed him, however, to write words like the words he writes in Philippians 1.21. After having experienced heaven, he says, to die is gain. I desire to depart, to leave this life, that is, uh, and to go to heaven, which is far better. Now, his longing is not for his soul to be asleep for eons of time. His longing was to experience again what he experienced when he was in the presence of the Lord in heaven. The souls of martyred believers in heaven are in full awareness of where they are and what is taking place around them. They're fully conscious, and they cry out in Revelation 6.10, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him will never die. Your heavenly Father has a glorious future in heaven for you, his child. It begins when we flatline. One of our members explained death to me in this way years and years ago, and he was right. He was a layperson, not a, not a theologian. But he said, death is not a period, it's a comma. He was right. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that to be away from the body is to be immediately at home with the Lord. Now, what is heaven like? Well, one of the questions that I have been asked in my ministry uh, on, on many occasions, I would say, I think that's safe, is do those who have departed this life know what is happening on earth? 
Now, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates or even implies that they do, that they know. There are severe warnings against people on earth trying to contact the dead. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12 records these words. Let no one be found among you who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Now, the warnings aren't given as an indication that it's possible for people here to contact people there. What God's concern was through Scripture, His concern was that He did not want His people attempting to contact the dead. They would never be able to do it. But in attempting to do it, contacting evil spirits and making contact with demons, and then worshiping um, Satan and in a a satanic way, that is uh, certainly possible. Isaiah warns of the futility of the living attempting to gain information from their dead in Isaiah 8, 19 through 20. He says, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Saying the dead have no information to offer you, but God and the law of God certainly do. Now, it is reasonable to think, I think, that heaven wouldn't be heaven if the people there knew everything that was taking place on earth, or a lot of what is taking place on earth. I want to tell you, my godly grandparents, and I I had them in time on both sides, would be absolutely appalled and heartbroken if they knew the things that their grandchildren are engaging in, so many of them. It really would not be heaven for them. But we don't base our theology on what makes sense on reasoning. It's far better to believe that since we are not told in Scripture that people in heaven know what's going on on earth, that they just don't. Additionally, we go back to that sleep analogy. And remember, the analogy is used to indicate that people who are in heaven are asleep with regard to what goes on in this life. And so I think that helps support um, the contention that they don't know what's going on. Now, I've been asked, do people in heaven have memories of life lived on earth? And I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. The martyred Christians in heaven in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 know that they died for their faith. The rich man in the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16, 19 and following, he dies and he remembers in eternity things that took place in his life um, on earth. Um, Now, I know that Jesus isn't talking primarily about what eternity is like in that story that he tells, but I don't think that Jesus would mislead the people around him and us um, by telling that story Uh, if it weren't true that there is memory in heaven. But we have other evidence of it beyond that. You're going to praise God in heaven. How do you praise God in heaven? You praise Him, at least in part, on the basis of the grace that He extended to you while you are here on earth. So you will remember His goodnesses to Him, and it will be part of your adoration and praise in heaven. And then Jesus talking about the judgment of the last day after the resurrection. 
In Matthew 7, 22 and 25, 37 through 40. In those passages, um, after Jesus' return, he talks about memory in heaven, that we will remember uh, our deeds that are done on earth. Now, I know this congregation is a, a thinking congregation. You are. And you may be thinking, if there is memory in heaven of life lived on earth, does memory of our sin make heaven to be less than heaven, less than paradise? And I've thought about that, and my thinking is that when we are there and experiencing the incomprehensible enormity of God's forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus, that the experience, that experience of the immensity of God's grace will eclipse any painful memory that we have of sins that we have committed. Now, I'm told that when a woman has a baby and goes through labor and it's painful labor, she's presented the baby, and it might take a while, but in time, she forgets the pain for the joy of having the baby. I think it's something similar to that, that what we get is so great that what we remember with regard uh, to the pain of our sin is eclipsed by the joy that we experience. Now, you're going to experience personal growth in heaven. It's not the end when you die of your growth. The growth will not be growth in holiness. In this life, we struggle by God's grace to defeat sin in our lives. And there are some victories that we have, and we fail. We fall into sin again. We disappoint ourselves. Occasionally, we do and say or think things of which we thought we were incapable my really good news for you, that good news from Scripture is drawn together and expressed in the Shorter Catechism, question 37. It says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Now listen to this beautiful answer. The souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness. Now that's right out of Scripture. Hebrews 12, 23 says that heaven is the place of the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect. I want to tell you good news today, and it's this. At death, the struggle for holiness is over. No more whack-a-mole. You know, you hit this sin and another one pops, pops up. It's all gone. One of the great blessings of heaven is in the worship program, the bulletin. There is no line item that says confession of sin. And, and I, I told the group this morning, you know, I, it, it just, it drives me insane that there are a couple things that every time we do that confession, it seems like I have to confess over and over again. They're not huge things, but they are sins. And I look forward to the time when I don't have to do that anymore. Now, Adam and Eve are no holier than they were when they entered heaven millennia ago. They were made perfect at death. But they know a lot more than they did when they died. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12. And let me turn and read these to you. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things 
behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know more fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, he ends with, is uh, love. We will never be omniscient, never ever. We are never going to be gods, but in heaven we will still be creatures made in God's image. And we will see what's going on, we will hear what's going on, we will think about what's going on, and in that process we're going to advance in knowledge and understanding and wisdom there is continued growth for us in heaven. Now, the question always comes up, will we know people in heaven whom we have known here in that period before resurrection bodies? Now, remember, we're talking about what theologians call the intermediate state, and it's the period of time from when believers die and their souls go to heaven, and Jesus returns and reunites souls with resurrected bodies. So in that intermediate state, when we don't have bodies, will people know people who are there? Now, James Boyce, many of you know, was pastor of 10th Press in Philadelphia PCA Church for many, many years. He also was a prolific um, author. And he wrote a theology called Foundations of the Christian Faith. And in his theology, he expresses his belief that the Old Testament phrase used often for death in the Old Testament, and here it is, and he or she was gathered to his or her people. Uh, an example of that would be Genesis 25, 8, but it's all over the Old Testament. Genesis 25 is about Abraham. He was gathered to his people. Boyce says that implies reunion and recognition, reunion and recognition. Now, remember, the resurrection hasn't taken place yet, has it? In Luke 9, 28 through 33, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they recognize Moses and Elijah, whose identities remain intact in death. Jesus says in Luke 16, 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is saying, help people here on earth with the resources that God has given you, and in heaven there will be people who seek you out and thank you for the help that you gave them. Recognition is implied. Heaven, even before the resurrection of believers, is primarily about reunion and unbroken fellowship with Christ and with all who have loved Jesus. To have these, we must know and be known. Now, there will be different relationships in heaven. Matthew 22, 22 through 33, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and they come with this story they've cooked up to make him look foolish and uh, to show how foolish the resurrection of the dead is. And they say, um, a woman gets married seven times, you know, one right after the other sequentially, and then the resurrection comes. Um, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So, um, if after the resurrection, and Jesus was talking about the resurrection, 
if after the resurrection, the relationships that we have here on earth are severed, it's safe to believe that in the intermediate state, they're also severed. On that basis in heaven, you will know and you will love and fellowship with grandparents and parents, uh, spouses, children, aunts, uncles, everybody who's loved Jesus, but the relationships that were so necessary here on earth, that were so vital to life lived on earth and suited for it, uh, those will be gone forever. So where are we? What happens at death? What is heaven like? Lastly, let's look at the blessings of heaven. Now, I've done this pastor thing for a long time. It's been 44 years, and I can tell you that in youth or in old age, if a person is blessed with good physical health and mental health, uh, old or young, it doesn't seem to matter, if their life is lived in safety and freedom and security, abundance, death is viewed as the malevolent, unnatural monstrosity that Scripture sees it to be. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul calls death Jesus' final enemy. And it's Jesus' final enemy because the final enemy of Jesus' people, of us. So I can tell you, when everything's going good, people see it as the enemy. But when disease and pain and suffering and disabilities and poverty and mental torment and loneliness and heartbreak are the only thing that people have to look forward to, death often becomes a welcome friend for those who are prepared to meet their Savior in the heaven that He has prepared for them. I've witnessed this dynamic many, many times in my 44 years of the pastoral ministry. St. John writes in Revelation 14, 13, blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. God, through the Apostle John, tells us that death for believers is a blessing. It brings eternal rest. It brings the end of the struggle, the toil, the worry, the care, the fear, the anguish, all of the bad stuff that has come into our world because of sin and the fall, sin in us, sin in others. It all comes to the end, all the hard things we deal with. And in Revelation 14, 14 13, it also says that God in heaven rewards us for our deeds for the Lord. Heaven brings total satisfaction of every need. Just think about what that would be like. Every need that you ever would have satisfied. Revelation 7, 16, 17a, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb, Jesus, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water everything you ever needed provided. Heaven ends every disappointment, every grief that we ever experience. That chapter 7 of the Revelation ends with these words, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, let me tell you something that might shock you, because I am a minister, and I've told you I've done this for 44 years. When I was a preteen, I hated church. You know, I'm not going to candy coat it at all. I hated church. 
I thought it was boring. I thought just like you do right now, the sermons were too long. I just detested it, and I tried to take every opportunity to not go to church. Now, don't let your kids get away with that. My parents did not, and I am so glad they didn't because it was on a Sunday night when I wanted to be playing with my friends that the Lord gripped my heart, broke me, showed me my sin, and I went home and asked Jesus to come into my heart. If I were raising kids today, and I think we did our kids this way, I would never let them miss a worship service. You don't know when lightning's going to strike. Your kids are out there in the world. Their heads are being laundered, their brains every day. You need to have them here. It's more important than sports. It's more important than anything they do. The gospel is preached from this pulpit week after week after week. And if you want to see your kids in heaven, you better have them here and make this a priority. If you say Jesus Christ is Lord and you want him to be Lord of your children, you better get them here. Not my notes. Forgive me, okay? It's important. I didn't want to go. My parents made me go. My mother's response to my complaints about church being boring and all is this. What are you going to do when you get to heaven? It's all church all the time. <sighs> and I'm telling you, I thought about that. I thought, you know, I don't want to go to heaven, but the alternative, see, I've been in church a lot, and they preached on hell, and I knew about the alternative. I did not want to go there. I knew that. But at some point, it began to come together for me, and I saw that my mother was wrong. And here's where she was wrong. The problem, part of the problem I had, part of it was just my sin, but part of it was uh, I have a hard time sitting still. You don't know that. You're in shock. And so I was in this body that wanted to be moving all the time, and they were making me sit there and listen to this stuff, and my mind was wandering and all that kind of stuff. And then I got thinking that if I die, I'm not taking this body with me. My soul will be in heaven, and God prepares heaven for me. He'll prepare my soul for heaven. And then resurrection is coming. Jesus is going to return, and I'm going to get a body that's suited for heaven. So when I started thinking that way, I thought, well, at least heaven will be a blast even if this church is not. Didn't want to go to church. How, long, how, how much church have I been in in my life since, since then? The apostle who experienced heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, saw and heard things that were so wonderful that ever after that, he wanted to go there. He struggled with staying here. So in Philippians 1, 23 through 24, he tells the believers at Philippi, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He wanted to go badly, but he was willing to stay for his ministry here. Little girl was walking with her dad, starlit night, no lights of the city around. I don't know where it was, but I, I think Montana when I think of that. And she looked up in the sky, and she saw millions and millions of stars. And this is what she said to her daddy. If the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what do you think the right side will be like? 
I think she got it right. When the time comes for you to see the right side of heaven, the experience is going to be exhilarating in every way. Look what God created for 70 years here. What do you think he could do when he creates something for his children to experience for eternity? But you know, even this is not the end of the story. God's ultimate plan for his children is life forever embodies like his son's resurrected body. The end game for Christians is the Romans 8.23 that we read, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies. We claim the promise of Romans 8.11 that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Two questions. Are you prepared to go there? The only way you can get in is to do what that thief on the cross did who confessed his sin and realized that Jesus could save him, and he reached out to Jesus in a prayer of faith. You need to do that right now if you've never done it. You need to say, Lord, I believe I've sinned. I've violated your laws. I've displeased you. I'm worthy of judgment. I want my sins judged in Jesus, not me. And then the second question is, if this is all real, how does it shape the rest of your life here? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if all of this stuff is false, go eat, drink, and be merry. Go have a party. He also said, since it's all true, that you should be abounding in your labor, labor for the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We should be using our lives for what is ahead of us and for the kingdom of God and eternal reward. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for the opportunity to think about heaven. Father, I pray if there are those here who don't know Jesus, they're not sure, I pray they do what that thief did. Father, he couldn't do any good works. All he could do with hands nailed to the cross was reach out for grace. And your son, dying for sin, promised him that he would be with him that day. Father, I pray that people here would do that. Thank you, Father, for working in our lives, those of us who are believers, drawing us to Jesus. Thank you, Father, again, that we have hope that goes beyond the grave, that life isn't just for a few years here that go by so incredibly fast that we're going to be reunited in fellowship forever with Jesus and all of those who have loved him. Thank you for that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing?